big night. And it's a night of, uh, it's, it's not just a sad night of goodbyes, it's a night of celebration. Uh, we're celebrating about 10 of you graduating seniors, and some of you have been here all four years uh, at RUF. Um, God has been at work in you and through you in really big ways uh, the past four years. And we're celebrating Stuart and celebrating what God has done in and through Stuart uh, these past two years. And all of us, I imagine, are celebrating a little bit that the end is near, finals are almost over, maybe summer conference or you get to go back home and, and relax. Um, and we're celebrating what, what's shaping up to be a, a neat year next year. Uh, looks like uh, some good things happening. And so if you think about celebration, the fuel for celebration is remembrance. That's the, that's the catalyst that kind of sets our hearts free to enter into the joy in the moment and just get caught up in the celebration. It's remembrance, right? You throw a birthday party. You're remembering back all the previous years as you celebrate, or we get together for Christmas or Easter or whatever. We, we're remembering. And so there's a lot that we need to call back to memory tonight. You seniors, do you remember your first days stepping on campus four years ago, little tiny you coming from your probably little bitty town or Hawaii, and, uh, <laughs> and 17,000 people, and you don't know barely any of them. And maybe you were a Christian at the time, maybe you weren't a Christian, but you're stepping into this new place and, uh, and you're wondering, who are my friends going to be? And you're doing that awkward walk down the hallway of your dorm or down I-Mall where you kind of recognize people, but you don't know anybody. And there were some really weak, uncertain moments those years. Uh, do you remember those times? Do you remember how God met you in those moments? And do you remember how you got from that place now to where you are tonight in this room? Stuart, do you remember two years ago when you moved out here uh, and your uh, glorious co-intern, Jen Laughlin, uh, described this place, trying to compliment it as looking like Iraq. And, uh, <laughs> and that's your first entrance into Las Cruces. If, for a Western North Carolina boy with all trees and just beautiful mountains everywhere, and you get out here into the desert uh, and the drive from El Paso to Las Cruces could use some improvement. But... Uh, but you're wondering in those, in those first few months or first year of the internship, could God ever be at work through me or, or would he ever be at work through me? Do you remember how you got from that point to where you are tonight? Uh, ministry team, or those of you who've been around RUF for a while, do you remember one year ago, almost to the night, Sid standing up here, a pastor, a shepherd, a dear friend and his wife, who you had known your entire college career and stood up a year ago here, and uh, was about to leave. Do you remember that? Ministry team, do you remember hearing about this icy hot party in <laughs> February where these weird strangers were going to come and meet you and we're all sizing each other up and, and seeing what that's going to be like? But do you remember wondering what's the fall going to be like? What's RUF going to be like? Is anybody going to come? Is the, uh, the culture going to stay the same? Is this going to be totally different? Are we going to trust these new people coming in? Do you remember the uncertainty and the fear, the fragility of those days? Do you remember how God brought you from that moment to where you are now? And Anna, do you remember sitting in our tiny little 800-square-foot apartment in Philly? Six months had gone by, and place after place that we'd looked at doing RUF, we were just realizing this is not for us. And the night before we get on a plane to go to Boulder, Colorado, to look at an RUF in Colorado University, 
we get a call about New Mexico State and we're immediately intrigued. Ten days later, we're on a plane down here. Do you remember how scary those six months were when we're looking at graduating and not having a clue where we're going? So everybody in the room, maybe you freshmen who are still a little bit in those scary places, do you remember August? So we all have a lot of, a lot of remembering to do, but hasn't God been good? Hasn't he been faithful? Hasn't he been careful with how he has engineered your days here? Hasn't he shown you his power in those weak little Bible studies? Leaders, you wondered if anything ever good's going to come out of your little weak words and your lack of preparation or your preparation that seemed like it didn't do any good. Do you remember how God brought his power in those weak little places and you began to learn that resurrection comes out of death places? Or out of weak sermons, Tuesday after Tuesday, that you struggle to grip your head around, but the Holy Spirit doesn't allow misarticulation or clumsy or cluttery words to get in the way of him growing you. Hasn't God been good? And so um, Stuart has already prayed to thank God, and Tyrell did a beautiful job of thanking God for what he's been doing. And so I'll let those prayers stand, but tonight is a night that kind of pushes into that theme of celebration and remembrance of what God has done. It's real stuff. This isn't a joke. This is real. And just as real as those moments were when you felt terrified or uncertain about what was next, God is here tonight and saying, wasn't I faithful? Didn't I keep my promises? Uh, Didn't I walk every step with you? All of us are going to be in a different place next year. Even those of you who plan on being at NMSU the next three or four years, you'll have different friends here, be different interns here. Uh, Your course schedule will be different. Your roommates are probably going to be different. You're probably going to be in another house. A whole new season of academic life as you get to your junior or senior year where things are a little harder. Some of y'all are moving to new towns, new churches, new communities, but old fears that you're afraid might topple you. Uh, You might be going to a new uh, relational season, engagement or marriage, whatever it is. We're all going to be in new places, and it's imperative that you remember that Jesus doesn't change. He is the eternal, unchangeable, infinite one. So is the Father. So is the Spirit. And so if he was the same during your yesterdays and he was faithful, he will be the same during your tomorrows. Uh, Even if you're going back home to a hostile family that is not happy with what God's been doing in you this semester. Jesus didn't change, even though our circumstances are. Talk about circumstances changing. The day Pentecost happened. You can think about the next few minutes, not so much as a sermon the way we normally do, but as an exhortation. An exhortation is basically preacher words for encouragement. And encouragement means encouragement. It's making you courageous. It's stiffening your spine so that you walk forward with your head up with a new confidence, even if you feel weak everywhere else. And so uh, the, the goal of the, just the next few minutes is to take one last adventure with Luke in one of his other letters, one last uh, glimpse at Jesus, this close encounter with Jesus, a day where it seemed like everything changed and there was a whole new normal. Uh, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his people, and he said from the Old Testament, the prophet Joel prophesied this, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them said there will come a day where God will dwell with his people. It won't be this distance relationship anymore. 
He will dwell inside of his people. That's why there won't be a temple anymore. The temple was where God was, but now there's a day where Jesus pours out the Spirit of God on his people. And he's there. that's why he says, you're the temple. Where you are, God is in you by his Spirit. That's what happened this day of Pentecost. Here's what's happened next. Rise up. We'll read this quickly. We'll make a few observations, and we will close. This is Peter after his first sermon after the resurrection helping all of the Israelites and all the people gathered there to understand how everything in the Old Testament pointed to exactly what happened on the cross and the resurrection. This is what happens next. Let all the house of Israel therefore know certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, the anointed one, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they, the the church, the believers, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all of those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation so that those who received his word were baptized so those who received his word were baptized and they were added to that day about 3000 souls now beginning in verse 42 is kind of the piece that we're going to zoom in on in the next few minutes so here it is and these believers they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles And all who believed were together, and they had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the profits to all, anyone who had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day, uh, added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. You can take a seat. Thanks. I told you uh, a few messages ago, uh, earlier this spring, we talked about my summer job a couple of years ago at a place called Britain Nursery in Chris's hometown, Colorado Springs, beautiful place. Uh, I worked at this place called Britain. My job was basically to um, plant and propagate, and fertilize, and water, and prune, and then ultimately deliver to these little uh, resale places or landscaping jobs, perennials. Perennials are plants that come back every year. They die in the winter, they come back bigger the next year. Uh, and that was my job. And I'd never, until I, I'd never had a job like that before where I was working with plants. And I never really realized how much intricate care has to go into uh, getting a little seed to the point that it looks like it does in your front yard. It is a tremendous amount of work. And so here's what I mean. Um, some plants, if you put too much fertilizer in the, in the dirt, it burned the roots and killed it. If you didn't put enough fertilizer in it, uh, it didn't grow. Some plants, if you overwatered them, if you watered them every day, it rotted the roots out and they died. Other plants, if you didn't water them every day, they would wither in the noonday sun and turn crispy and begin to, to die. Some plants needed full sun, some partial shade, some full shade. 
different plants had to be pruned up and trained on trellises in different ways. I was like, man, this is labor intensive. These, these plants are very finely tuned, very specifically tuned to what it's going to take to make them thrive and grow. And my point is, did you know that you're a perennial in that regard? And I am too. We are just like those plants. Here's how. God has finely tuned you for specific conditions. And if those conditions aren't there, we shouldn't expect to grow or to thrive. If you've all been on hikes before, you've, of course, seen these kind of perennials that I was growing in that nursery. You've seen them on the hikes. You've ever seen a columbine or a daisy or some of these different violas and different plants alongside little hiking trails. But if you see them in the wild all by themselves growing on their own, they're all scraggly. They're really thin and wave in the wind. There's not many blooms on them. They look one misstep, one hiker's misstep away from getting crushed. Whereas the ones grown in the nursery are just like bush-like. Blooms everywhere, beautiful. The kind of stuff people see at the store and like, I gotta have that, I'm taking it home. Did you know that God fine-tuned you for the church? He made you to plant you in the soil of the church. That is the soil, those are the conditions that he intends for us to grow into. That's where the nutrients are. That's where the care is. That's where the water, the sunshine, all of those things, the nourishment, it's all in the church. You were made for the soil of the church. And so uh, the basic gist of this is where are we putting our roots into? What does it look like to put our roots into uh, the church? Here's something that is really important to get, uh, no matter where you are with God. The good news of Christianity isn't simply this. It's not simply that Jesus saved you from your sins. It's not simply that he saved you from your guilt. That's half of the good news. The other half of the good news is what he saved you for. He saved you from sin and guilt, from regret, from shame, from your past, from slavery, from being stuck and never able to change yourself. That's what he saved you from. But he saved you for life for life cascading and abounding and just kind of running into wide open fields. That's what he saved you for. For love, for joy, for contentment, for confidence, for righteousness and purity and goodness. That's what he saved you for. Everything else was, was in a sense, means to the end of freeing us to this new life with God forever, right? He's, free, he's bringing it full circle. God dwells with his people and lives with us forever and perfect joy. And so the church is the place, if God has just saved us from our sins and for life, then where does this life sprout? God isn't flippant. He's not a God who just scatters seed around and wherever it falls, it grows. God is a gardener. He is a nursery worker. And he knows what he's doing. And so he has his little plot of land where he plants Christians where he plants people that his spirit has come to and said, live, rise up in Jesus. And he plants us in that soil of the church. And so we'll get really practical because a lot of you are in a place where you might have to look for a new community uh, soon. Some of you have been in Crucis and maybe it's been hard to find a community like this. And you're like, Ben, great idea. How in the world is this true? Uh, Because it doesn't pan out uh, in the way I've seen my life go.
There is a, also in Colorado Springs a lot of vacant lots. Seems like people had been in and out of the nursery business and when the housing market crashed, there were no more houses being built, no more landscapes being put in, and so no more plants being grown. And so I drove past a lot of empty lots with all the old Quonset Hut greenhouses and like black little buckets everywhere. It looks like something had been there before, an operation life had been there before, but not anymore. And a lot of us may think about the church that way. Maybe your experience growing up in the church was one where you're like, the glory's left the building. This place is dead. Or maybe you think about the church like it's a rotary club for Jesus, some civic organization where good people go to be good together. Or it's like a fraternity or sorority where the dues are less. Uh, and we talk of it's for spiritual people, religious people. No, no, no. The church is the incubator for a whole new human race. It is an incubator for a whole new humanity being renewed. Do you remember what uh, Casey read from 1 Peter? We've read it a few times the past year. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you didn't belong, now you belong. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. Why? So that the world can look at the plants God's growing in this incubator, in this nursery, and say, whoa, life, where is it coming from? Where does the life and the vitality come from in the church? If it's not just a human institution or a man-made organization, that rotary club, then where's the life come from? Because you've got to be able to distinguish between what is a dead community and what is a vibrant, lively community that's sending out life the way Britain Nursery sent out plants all across the region. Where does the source come from? Where does the nourishment? God never nourishes you with things. He only nourishes you with himself. So he gives you himself, which is why Jesus, this is an intensely personal moment. God the Father planned the rescue of humanity. Jesus accomplished the rescue of humanity. The Spirit applies the rescue to every nook and cranny of your crooked heart and my crooked heart. Every corner of your sexuality, every corner of your intellect, every corner of your relationships, your social life, your body, which will be fully redeemed and glorified and resurrected. The Spirit is applying all of that, bringing it to you, just the same way roots bring up nourishment into a plant, if it's planted in that kind of soil. So a few practical things, and we'll end. What do you do when your experience in the church is worlds apart from what I'm describing? Worlds apart from believers selling their possessions to send somebody else on summer conference. Believers being in deep harmony with one another. None of this competition, none of this gossiping and slandering and one-upping and how can I climb the ladder at RUF or climb the ladder at my church. You say, those are two different worlds, Ben. How, do, how does it fit? What does the church really look like in practicality for the church that you're a part of? He gives us a few things to look at, and I'd encourage you as you, uh, some of you guys lean into the season of life where you're going to have to look at a new church. This is a great passage to go back to and to hold it up next to that nursery and say, here's the, here's the, here's the church, here's what God says a church is supposed to be. Is it alive or is it dead? Are these things happening? These are a few of the things. He says they had uh, things like fellowship. They had everything in common with one another. The word of the apostles or the story of Jesus rescuing the world and making everything right in him 
Is that story the story that's, is that the only story that's being told? Or have they ventured off into some other anecdotes or little superficial inspirational stories that make you feel good only, but never have anything to do with transforming power? Is the story of the apostles, the story of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the one coherent story being proclaimed every week? Are the sacraments being brought to you weekly? Because Jesus doesn't just preach his good news to your ears. He preaches it to your eyes. And he says, look, you have a hard time wrapping your head around this? How about you swallow the gospel? How about you taste it? How about you chew on it? How about you see as surely as the bread goes into your mouth and the wine goes into your mouth, so surely Jesus nourishes your faith, feeding it the way he feeds your body with his body, with himself. Is baptism being practiced? Is there a distinction between those who are alive in Jesus and those who are still on the outside looking in? Those who we're inviting in, those who are going to be added to the number, but is baptism kind of the initiation rite into the Christian church, the public mark that you have been made one with Jesus? Is that being practiced? Is there sacrificial generosity going on? Are people being real with each other? Deep conviction of sin, the way uh, he talks about in the very early verses of the passage. You want to know the mark of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Here's what it's not. It's not weird, mystical, magical things like all of a sudden having crazy dreams and speaking in weird tongues and everything. That's not how the Bible describes the work of the Spirit of Jesus. The work of the Spirit of Jesus in your life looks like conviction of sin, looks like a desire to repent, and it looks like weak faith that looks at a beautiful, big, strong, patient Jesus. That's what the work of the spirit of resurrection in your life looks like. Those are the telltale signs. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's those things, you guarantee yourself the spirit is near. So is the church that you go to or you're a part of bearing the marks, bearing those marks as well. You don't have to replicate RUF wherever you go. Hey, guys, who will be here next year? We don't have to replicate RUF of 2014 next year either. Jesus is always doing new things. And so you can let RUF, in a sense, be the appetizer that whets your appetite for the main course. Those of you who are going off to new towns, RUF is a part of the church on the college campus. It's like the church's arm reaching out to the college campus. We have never wanted to be about ourselves. We have never gauged the success of this ministry by where people are in the tiny little four-year gap of college. I'm a lot more concerned of what kind of husband or wife or parent or elder or deacon or counselor or engineer you're going to be in 20 or 30 years. Are you going to be more alive then than you are now? Are you going to be quicker to repent then than you are now? That's where we'll measure success of this ministry. And so you get to leave this place and thank God for what he did in you here, but you get to go to the next place and you don't have to eat appetizers the rest of your life. The point of an appetizer is to prepare you, to prepare your taste buds for something better. And so please don't go to these new towns dejected, thinking like Simeon and Morgan said earlier that, that Jesus is confined to Corbett Auditorium. He's the Lord of the universe. He goes wherever he wants to go. And he goes everywhere because his people are everywhere. And so leave here with your head up. 
Leave here with confidence. Leave here expecting to see the Spirit doing things in the place that you're going. Or if you come back, expect Him to be doing things here. I want to read you something in closing by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is from a book called Life Together. Many of you have read this in the past. I think Sid had you older guys uh, read this a few years ago. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts his finger on some of the pushback our hearts feel about the church. You say, well, I go to the church and the sermons are boring. And it's like, ugh, I'm always half tired and I'm really hungry and I want to go to lunch afterwards. It's all old people. They smell weird. It's like (laughs) awkward people. It's needy people. I just don't feel like these people get me. And we come into these communities with with skyscraper tall expectations. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer warns us about that but he gives us something more beautiful than, a, than perfectionism in the church. He says this, and per, permit me to, to jump around and quote at length here. He says, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it's sprung from a wish dream, wishful thinking. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very specific idea of what Christian life together should look like, and he'll try to make it happen, Right? Um, but God's grace speedily crashes shut such dreams. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a second in a dream world. He doesn't abandon us to those uh, lofty experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God merely of the emotions, but a God of truth. And so only that fellowship with, which faces head-on such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, the messiness of the church, begins to be what it should be in God's sight and begins to grasp in faith the promise that was given to it. So he says a community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis of disillusionment, like you get to the next town, you're like, ugh, this is going to be the hardest place in the world. He says a community that doesn't face that moment and assists, insist upon clinging to its illusion when it should be shattered, they permanently lose in that moment the promise of Christian community. He who lives his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a, a destroyer of Christian community. He enters community with, its, with his demands. He sets up his own law, and he judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Here's a better way, though, Bonhoeffer says, But, because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship with one another, our communion with one another, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with each other. So we enter into that common life not as demanders with high expectations, but as thankful recipients. This is the very last thing he says. Thus, the very hour of our disappointments in the church becomes incomparably beautiful because because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither me nor these people can live in our own strength, but only by the word and the deed uh, which really bind us together, which is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And so he says, only when those dreams of perfect community die, that is when the sunrise of a beautiful new dawn of Christian community, of vibrant life, of you flourishing in the soil you were made for, that's when it begins to take root. Same with your marriage one day. If you come into marriage with dreams of a perfect spouse, you will kill your marriage. It's when you die 
to those dreams that life begins. And so you can be a part of a messy church because your God is clean. You can be a part of a weak church. Your God is strong. You can be part of an awkward church. Jesus tended to be around those people more than cool people. And so we can go out of this place. Thank you, brother, who said amen. Uh, We can go out of this place with our heads up, with confidence, not with fear, not with trepidation. Jesus is going to get his way in every square inch of reality. He's going to get his way. And everybody will be better for it who are in his church. Let's pray. And then we're going we're gonna to pack up pretty quickly and move to my house. The, my address is on the thing uh, because we want to move on to uh, celebrating and, and um, encouraging and being encouraged by our seniors. So uh, you can mingle at my house, but we're going we're gonna to vacate pretty quickly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for planting us in the rich, nourishing soil of your church where your Holy Spirit himself brings you to us. We thank you that you're not a God who gives us little pills and caplets and quotes to memorize and hoops to jump through, but you're the God who gives us yourself and nothing less. Uh, We pray for all of us as we enter into new and unfamiliar places this coming year, all of us. We pray that as we enter into that, we would remember that you alone have not changed and you alone were the source of all of the blessing and goodness in our lives up to this point. So would we look forward to the future with anticipation and celebration and remembrance of the past. We ask this in your name. Amen.